0: Welcome back to Unprecedential. I'm Adam White. At the very root of our Constitution is equality. The Declaration of Independence declared the self-evident truth that all men are created equal. Almost a century later, after the Civil War extinguished the cruel hypocrisy of slavery, the 14th Amendment declared equal protection of the laws. But for the last century, America has grappled with the meaning of constitutional equality for women. Since 1920s ratification of the 19th Amendment's right of women to vote, We've seen debates in the Supreme Court about the 14th Amendment's protections for women. We've seen debates in Congress, the states, and the Court of Public Opinion regarding the Equal Rights Amendment, and much more. A recent article for National Affairs attempts to clarify these debates in our own time by tracing them back two centuries. The article is titled, The Contested Meaning of Women's Equality, and the author, a scholar at the Ethics and Public Policy Center, is our guest today. Erica Bakayoki, welcome to Unprecedential.
1: Thank you so much for having me, Adam.
0: By way of background, Erica researches and writes on equal protection jurisprudence, feminist legal theory, Catholic social teaching, sexual ethics. Her new book, which we'll discuss in a little while, is titled The Rights of Women Reclaiming a Lost Vision. She previously served as a visiting scholar at Harvard Law in 2018, and she's a senior fellow at the Abigail Adams Institute in Cambridge, Massachusetts, where she founded and directs the Wollstonecraft project. And perhaps that's a good place to start, Erica. Who was Mary Wollstonecraft?
1: Yeah, so Mary Wollstonecraft is best known for her 1792 treatise, A Vindication of the Rights of Woman. Just prior to that, she actually engaged Edmund Burke in the Vindication of the Rights of Man. And, you know, she was involved there in the very beginnings of the French Revolution, though she tended to, though being in Paris during the reign of terror, decided that the American Revolution had a lot better possibilities for it, I think. She's actually a deeply misunderstood figure, given the outrageous, in some ways, biography that William Godwin, the anarchist, and her husband, short-lived husband, actually, wrote just after her death. She died, died in childbirth, sadly, in her 30s. But she's really, I think, a fascinating figure for us today because of her views about equality and rights. In the book, The Rights of Women, she actually, it's a, kind of amazing if you read it today to see how little it's actually concerned with rights and how very much it's concerned with the fulfillment of duties, the duties of parents, especially, but also the duties of, of citizens, and especially with virtue, with the end of freedom for her, the end of liberty, why she argued so you know strongly for a Republican government was so that Human beings, both male and female, who were, you know, rational creatures, as she said, created by and responsible to God, could live out virtuously the duties that they had before them. So their duties to God, their duties to themselves to develop as rational creatures, and their duties to, again, their children and to their fellow human beings.
0: Now you juxtapose her in your essay with John Stuart Mill. Wollstonecraft writes her vindication of the rights of woman in 1792. Mill, nearly a century later in 1869, writes, Subjection of Women. So, could you perhaps just describe the the difference between their, their two versions of feminism?
1: Yeah, you know, it's actually really interesting because we sort of remember these two together. And it's unfortunate in part because of how distinctive they really are. John Stuart Mill's Subjection of Women, I think, really eclipses Mary Wollstonecraft's thought in kind of the history of feminism. And he becomes, I think, the real you know philosophical underpinnings of you know something like the equal rights amendment and modern feminism Mary Wollstonecraft however is really the grandmother you could say or the mother of in the United States first wave feminism or the early women's rights advocates the suffragists and if you you know look they they all read her they published you know the Vindication of the Rights of Woman in the Revolution in their newspaper And if you read, you know, the Women's Rights Convention at Seneca Falls in 1848, you really see, if you know Wollstonecraft, you really see her views of sex equality very much there. You know, they defended sex equality on the basis of the identity of the race and capacities and responsibilities. And, you know, they really demanded that both men and women be held to this single moral standard, to a high moral standard, sort of inviting Men into that high moral standard that women were required to live. But then when you get to Mill, what you see is this transformation of liberty from, in Wollstonecraft's thought, as I said, a means to virtuously fulfill our given duties, to in Mill, really kind of this essential human capacity, but with no particular goal or end in mind. And so, you know, you really see this, say, in Mill's telling where elites are not so much to direct their gifts to the common good, which is very much kind of a Wollstonecraft way of thinking about it, but rather to engage kind of creatively in experiments in living, right? And regardless of the downstream effect on the more disadvantaged. So you really see this split off in how, and it has consequences very much so for how women's rights advocates think about equality. I mean, certainly in Mill, you see this strict equality principle at the very beginning of his treaties. And, you know, I think all women's rights advocates I talk about in the article would really, you know, not disagree much with Mill's kind of description of the problem. The issue though comes when he advocates this strict equality principle, one which by the way, the late Justice Ginsburg, you know, quoted all over the place, <laughs> but, but he talks about, he says, quote, perfect equality, that this is the principle sort of he wanted to advocate a perfect equality, or we might say a strict equality admitting no power or privilege on the one side, nor disability on the other. And, you know, certainly we could say, and this was Ginsburg's early advocacy, that this makes good sense in areas of law where there's kind of no distinction between men and women. But when it comes to reproductive differences, differences in sex and that kind of thing, this becomes quite a problem, you know, and and one of the things, and I'll just add and then end there about my response about Mill is that because of his kind of utilitarian bent, one of the reasons he wanted women's development and women's vote and women's education, all of these types of things is, you know, to, as he said, double the mass of mental faculties available for higher, the higher service of humanity. So this, you know, it's kind of the roots really of what we see in current modern day feminism, which is really the desire to see equality of participation in the marketplace, you know, so that we can be seeing both men and women as kind of equal breadwinners, equally doing the work, bringing in equal wages, bringing in equal salaries, because they're putting an equal time in the marketplace. And I think very different from the prioritization that Wollstonecraft gave of the work of the home. And that being, as she said, the first duty of citizens, because she understood that that's really the seedbeds of virtue that allows even, you know, the work that takes place in the marketplace to even occur is what goes on in, in the family, the important work of the family.
0: I was curious, was Mill writing consciously in, in response to Wollstonecraft or was he just writing sort of in parallel on the same subject and, and their disagreements were, were implicit, not sort of explicitly directed back at her earlier work?
1: Yes. Scholars who look at this, she, he never, he never references her as far as I can remember. Scholars who've looked at both of these say that because of her reputational difficulties that came due to this Godwin biography, which is its own topic altogether, he just decided not to really refer to her at all. What these scholars say, though, is that Harriet Taylor, his wife, I can't remember if she was his wife at this time, actually now, But she certainly had read Wollstonecraft and kind of imbibed Wollstonecraft. But of course, there is this disjuncture in the consideration of the priority of virtue. And, you know, for Wollstonecraft, you read through The Vindication of the Rights of Women and you see how she understood that the ends of human life is really the development of virtue and wisdom in human beings, regardless of their starting point, that that was sort of the purpose of life. And so, you know, and also the responsibility to God and all of this, and that you know, God created us, and so of course that's where we we get our end, and that is very much gone when you when you get to Mill.
0: Uh, I just went back and looked myself because I was curious, and Mill was married to Taylor in the eighteen fifties. She died, okay. obviously, in eighteen fifty eight, and then his his book comes out in eighteen. Or I guess the book is what written in eighteen sixty one, and then published. I, I seem to remember it being published later, but.
1: Yeah. Anyway. And so he, yeah, a tribute to her. I mean, she would he she was certainly greatly influential influential on him. And the reason I couldn't remember if they were married yet is because they had an affair right. while she was married for a long right. time. So I, I couldn't right. remember that.
0: Right. Well, that's a different podcast. Moving forward a little bit further in, in in time, then this dichotomy between Wollstonecraft and Mill's versions of feminism, you then translate to two 20th century figures, Alice Paul and Florence Kelly. Could you describe who they were?
1: Sure. So Alice Paul emerges as a really big figure right before the 19th Amendment, you know, so women's suffrage is passed. She is the one who a lot of the figures were looking to try to move as a gain women's vote. And they were doing great, making great progress at the state level. And then you saw, you know, Susie Anthony, one of the great pioneers of suffrage. She dies in the early 20th century. So Alice Paul really takes the mantle of national suffrage. And so she becomes kind of the heroine of that and pushes it through. So just after, you know, she does this, it seems to her that the kind of next thing to do is to try to pass this equal rights amendment, as she says, to take sex out of the law, to give women the equality in the law, they have won at the polls. And so that's her work. And she has many connections in, you know, the legal world in trying to pass this equal rights amendment. But she has this kind of great adversary, as I say, kind of a follower of Mary Wilson Craft, Lawrence Kelly, who is basically a labor advocate. She's an advocate for both women and children in the workplace. She started her career as one who was going into shops and seeing the kind of, you know, the age at which children were working, seeing the kind of harm. She was very much a part of Jane Addams' work at Hull House, seeing the kind of horrible workplace situation and the and what was going on for women foisted into the workplace in, during the Industrial Revolution. So she comes out of that kind of the labor reform, children's reform movement and is really seeking protective labor legislation for women. And why is this? Well, men at this time had pretty, you know, growing, at least robust labor unions. Women had no such thing. So she's really seeking protective labor legislation for women. And so they, it really comes to a head actually at Lochner V New York, which is interesting because a lot of people don't know the history. Everyone knows the Lochner case who has been to law school and whether you know they think it's infamous or now with kind of the Randy Barnett move, you know they see it as this maybe maybe better case than it has been thought of in, in decades past. But Florence Kelly was very much opposed to Lochner and Alice Paul was very much in favor of Lochner because she thought the kind of you know upgrading you know the common law liberty of contract to the status of a constitutional right, would expand married women's capacity to contract, which he thought was very important for women being able to earn you know, just wages in the workplace. And Florence Kelly was very much worried of the kind of power, inequality of power that the capitalists had during this time. And was worried that that women would just be taken advantage of in, in the industrial workplace. So that was kind of where they came to a head.
0: I was so struck by this part of your article, Erica. I didn't know this aspect of the Lochner case. I would really encourage our listeners to of course, read the article, but especially look for this part of it, at least the lawyers in the audience. I just found this so fascinating. You point out that, as you just explained, Alice Paul thought that extending a constitutional right of contract to all Americans would be of special benefit to women who would then be freed from the coverture of their husbands and who could actually support themselves or at least have the option to support themselves as necessary. Kelly sees things quite differently. And you go on to note, that Kelly in later secures the legal assistance of Louis Brandeis, when he was still a, a famous advocate, arguing in support of the maximum hours laws for women, the law that Oregon passed, and that was challenged in the case of Mueller versus Oregon, famously the case where, where Brandeis is defending this law as he defended so much progressive regulation, but here defending it for the sake of of women. Could you just describe that a little bit?
1: Yeah, so Mueller is a really, really controversial decision, partly because of the way that it talks about kind of women's dependence on men. But I think if you strip away some of that language, you really see this case in which, you know, the court upholds this woman protective labor law and follows really Brandeis's logic, basically seeing how maternity in this case, you know, both pregnancy and childbearing as the court says, puts working women at a disadvantage in the struggle for subsistence. And so this protective labor legislation could compensate for some of the burdens which rest upon them. And if you think about it, that's what all maternity legislation is trying to do, right? I mean, and this is fast forward to our time. This is what family policy is trying to do is let's compensate parents and especially mothers who bear children, you know, with kind of the burdens that lie upon them, that there there isn't a strict equality between men and women, especially with regard to, you know, sex and reproduction. And so why pretend that there is in the law, you know, that there's more, it's sort of equalizing them to say, let's help recognize those kind of asymmetries between men and women. So this was something that, yes, that Kelly and Brandeis worked at, uh, and then Frankfurter too, which is fascinating. And, you know, on the other side, you have Justice Sutherland who's really on on Alice Pauls side. So you know, in the history books and in con Law and all that, we really hear about these great justices. We hardly hear about kind of the women behind them who are making these kind of arguments on the ground, which I think is so fascinating. By the Eleven. way, a whole chapter chapter five in my book is dedicated in much more detail to this this really fascinating, I think, part of constitutional law. Well,
0: that's great. I, I really think of the Mueller case I always have as you know it's some of the famous quotes in that case. Which people point to today as, you know, evidencing the court's misogynism, just it's its prejudice against women, especially coming on the heels of Lochner. You hold up the Lochner case vindicating liberty of contract. And then just three years later in Mueller, the court the same court saying, Well, wait a second, this is about women and that's different. I've always thought of this case in much, much different terms. And so I'll be very interested to read that part of your book. And again, seeing that, that that aspect of the story sketched out in the essay was just really eye opening for me. The next sort of forum for these debates in the 20th century is the Equal Rights Amendment. And that's sort of the core of your, of, of your article. The Equal Rights Amendment, although it goes out for ratification much later in the 20th century, is formulated much, much earlier. In fact, you point back to the story of Alice Paul and Florence Kelly and and they're, they're sort of organizations negotiating over language at one point. So why don't, we, why don't we move to that then? How do Alice Paul and Florence Kelly and their generation bring us the Equal Rights Amendment?
1: Right. So there is this discussion. It's fascinating because and in the book, I really kind of show this in a lot of detail, but how these debates are ongoing exactly at the time when they're debating minimum wage laws, maximum hours laws, and these kinds of things. And so, you know, one of my favorite quotes in, in the article here is, you know, after Atkins v. Children's Hospital, which is when the court, you know, basically swings back, relying on Lochner kind of thinking and strikes down the minimum wage law for women, basically because the nine, of the 19th Amendment's intervention. So this is 1923. The 19th Amendment has come to pass. And so, you know, Justice Sutherland's reasoning is... Well, you know, basically the differences between the sexes has, as he says, comes almost, if not quite to the vanishing point, women are as legally as capable of contracting for themselves as men. And so, you know, you have dissents of Holmes, there, are just as Holmes saying like, I don't see how we can ever say that there's this, you know, obvious strict equality between men and women. Like, I'm just, I just don't buy it really, you know? And so, yeah, people read that back as this misogyny, but really it's just, you know, looking at the kind of situation that women in the workplace were in at that time with far less power to advocate for themselves and that kind of thing. So Kelly then comes along and and her, you know, her reaction to Atkins is, she says, the women who pretend to be making heroic exertions to get equal rights for all women are in practice, the little sisters of the United States Chamber of Commerce. And so she really, and this is an argument that the, those against the Equal Rights Amendment, basically the labor leaders for decades make against those proponents of the ERA starting with Alice Paul but then all those after her you know that the equal rights amendment was introduced in every congress until it was actually passed by the congress in the 1970s but so the argument is basically look you ERA elite women are just you know forming these bonds with kind of commercial interests corporate power as we would say today you know those mothers who have these serious responsibilities working class women who think of themselves as, you know, members of families, as women with responsibilities to their families first, you know, are being kicked to the curb basically. So that's kind of the argument that they take forward and you'll see it, you know, with Eleanor Roosevelt who was a great advocate for labor legislation, who, you know, sees again that the maternity legislation that is protective of women in these difficult situations is gonna be wiped out by the ERA.
0: Just to refresh my memory, Paul and Kelly at some point do try to work out a version of the ERA that would satisfy both sort of both their perspectives, but that all falls apart.
1: Yeah. And that's because, and it's, this is actually, of course, another fascinating part, but, you know, Paul really wants strict equality. That's it. And and there's all these negotiations about introducing some sort of exception, right, for this protective legislation. So it's kind of like, you know, it could be called a rider bill or something to basically deal with what is this kind of blanket equality. And so this is, this happens throughout the history of VRA. You know, the labor advocates say, okay, we'll take this strict equality as long as you promise it's not gonna wipe out protective legislation for mothers in the workplace. We can't allow that, you know. And so it's this constant back and forth. And, and that's why, you know, the negotiations break down because Paul will not, you know, say, you know, she wants strict equality. She thinks that's the way to, you know, to have women kind of progress in the professions and that kind of thing, to compete against men, those kinds of things. And Kelly says, no way. And so do all the labor advocates after that, going up until you get to FDR. So there's a big change. Once you get the Fair Labor Standards Act, once you have the supreme court starting to uphold progressive labor legislation then there's a bit of a turn because we're now we now have a kind of a floor in terms of wages and protections for for workers and so then you start to see women's rights advocates start to come together a bit more in trying to get anti-discrimination law passed in the workplace
0: and you point out when you, when you turn to the FDR era that Frances Perkins the, the first woman ever to be in a presidential cabinet the Secretary of Labor for FDR and an advocate for for more protective labor laws, that she was a protege of Kelly.
1: That's right. And there were many proteges of Kelly. I mean, she was really an enormous figure at that time, which is why it's too bad we don't hear more about her. I mean, we do hear of Jane Addams, which is wonderful. And she was, you know, in that same vein, but not so much about Florence Kelly, which is, you know, one of the things that I hope gets, you know, remediated (laughs) in the history by my book.
0: Now, the ERA has been in the news recently, and this is how you start your article by pointing to the recent ratification of the ERA by the state of, or sorry, the Commonwealth of Virginia. As a a new Virginian, I probably should know that. The Commonwealth of Virginia ratified the ERA in 2020. Of course, there's all sorts of questions surrounding it because the, the original congressional deadline for ratification of the ERA passed a long time ago. A number of states that previously ratified the ERA have withdrawn their ratification. Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg said that really, the the if there's going to be an ERA, the process needs to start over. Why don't you get us up to speed a little bit on where the ERA debates followed after those initial debates? We'll circle back in a little bit to the, the discussion of, of pregnancy and, and abortion, which you focus on in your essay. But could you just give us the timeline of how things played out for the ERA?
1: Right. So again, it's proposed in every Congress, often with these kind of this, these rider amendments never passes until, of course, the civil rights movement comes to pass. And so there's this desire to really see, you know, anti-discrimination law in the workplace. So, I mean, in part, because, you know, just prior to that, well, not just prior, but de- decades before, but then, you know, you see more women in the workplace. Why? Because of World War II, you know, men are out in the war, women are taking over what had been blue-collar work, you know, work reserved for men. And people begin to see, oh, I guess women can do this kind of work too. So there's an effort to start to see anti-discrimination law in the workplace on the heels of all that. So the ERA seems to be well, how about, you know, a good way to bring about anti-discrimination law. So the Congress passes it in 1972 and by and puts this deadline of of 1979, you know, and through 1977, there's many, many, as you say, states who have ratified it, but not close enough. And when Roe v. Wade comes down in 1973, there's a real question pushed by Phyllis Shaffley, of course, and others that, you know, the ERA could potentially require taxpayer funding for abortion. Why? Because, and we can get to this in a minute, I'll go through the history here quickly, but because feminists at that time, especially in in part in reaction to the ERA, sorry, in reaction to Roe kind of holding abortion as a as a privacy right, they really want to see abortion as equality right, which has continued, you know, for the next several decades as really, you know, the singular argument that that abortion rights advocates make. But as you say, you know, there isn't passage, there's the rescissions. And so, you know, it lies, you know, they try to they try to extend the deadline again into the 80s, no new states ratify it. And then you know there are many new progressive women in Congress, so they say, well, let's try this again. Despite you know Justice Ginsburg saying, well, wait a second, you know you really have to start the whole process all over again. And you know they give kind of this, you know they're speaking out of sort of two two sides of their mouth. One of the things that they want to say is, come on, it's this important symbolic gesture. We just have to see in the text of the amendment equality for men and women. And boy, you know I wish that that could be so, but it's a much more complicated issue than that, and that's why. You see the second strategy that happens in the 1970s. You know, there's a question by these, you know, labor advocates, those worried about a real strict equality, where they want to start seeing, you know, basically questioning. This is someone like Polly Murray, who, you know, Thurgood Marshall said, wrote, you know, the Bible of the civil rights movement. She was very good friends with Eleanor Roosevelt. And she was part of the president's commission. So President Kennedy's commission on the status of women. And she says, you know, let's test the Equal Protection Clause. Let's test the 14th Amendment. And, you know, it's really rehabilitating many of the arguments that suffragists made when the 14th Amendment was passed, that, you know, women should be included in the amendment too, because, well, women are persons and citizens. So she's really rehabilitating that and wanting to see kind of a litigation strategy. And so you see both the ERA strategy, and then you see a legislative strategy where, you know, Equal Pay Act is being passed you know, on the on the heels of the Civil Rights Act, those kinds of things. And then you see this litigation strategy. And so it's Pauline Murray's kind of dream for this, but it's really Ruth Bader Ginsburg who begins that work in earnest.
0: Now, when you describe this part of, of, of history, you write, quote, Murray and Ginsburg contended, as Wollstonecraft, Mill, and others had before them, the biological differences had historically been used to denigrate women's rational capacities. It's a class. And the Constitution, on the other hand, Required people to be judged individually on their merits. When I got to that line in your article, I, I was sort of struck because here you're, as I was trying to parcel out whether the, the, the Murray Ginsburg arguments of the 70s mapped on more closely to Wollstonecraft and Kelly or Mill and Paul, you sort of present them together, saying they used arguments that Wollstonecraft, Mill, and others had used before them. Is there an easy way to map that moment, the 60s into the 70s, sort of the Ruth Bader Ginsburg years of the Supreme Court as an advocate, more closely onto the the Wollstonecraft sort of view of, of women's equality or, or the Mills view?
1: Yeah. So this is where they really stand together. And why is that? It's because it's with regard to cases. So remember Ginsburg's cases in the early 1970s you know, had nothing to do with biological difference. So Reed versus Reed, the first case is, you know, a mother seeking to be the administrator of her deceased son's estate. She's there first in time. The Idaho statute says, well, no men should be preferred in being administrators of the state. So this is just a basic, you know, case of, well, you would say, and this is what the the court says in Reed versus Reed, that this is just arbitrary. You know, there's no sense that, you know, why would men be preferred as administrators in the state? Why not look at who's the better, you know, the better candidate for that role? So that's really where it goes. And, and she even says, and this is, you know, straight from her, her brief in Read versus Read that I quote in the article, when biological differences are not related to the activity in question, sex-based discrimination clashes with equal treatment. And so when you're dealing with just this kind of thing, where there's you know, no real distinction between the sexes in, you know, rational capacity, that kind of thing. I mean, there's certainly distinctions between individual men and women in rational capacity, but not between the sexes. And that's really an old view that there was this, you know, that men had a, you know, higher rational capacity. And that's something that both Wollstonecraft and Mill kind of put to bed just as, by the way, women's equality advocates really in medieval and Renaissance time said too, they all kind of said, look, you know, women haven't been educated like men have. How can you say that, you know, men have stronger rational capacities than women. We just don't know yet because we haven't given women, you know, equal education. So that's one of the reasons why both, you know, Wollstonecraft, especially Wollstonecraft and then Mel too are are fighting for equal education. The problem is when you come to, when there's distinctions between men and women, when it comes to reproduction. So this is what I call reproductive asymmetry, right? That there's these, and sexual asymmetry, that there's real differences between men and women when it comes to their reproductive capacities, right? And so this is where Ginsburg kind of take begins to sound a lot like Mill. She wants strict equality kind of no matter what. And she then includes abortion within that kind of appeal to strict equality. Why? Well, of course, yes, men and women have these different reproductive differences and men can, you know, autonomously walk away even if it's into the next room but they can walk away from a pregnancy. Whereas women, of course, Their reproductive capacities, you know, do not allow them to walk away. They have to affirmatively take the life of their child. It's a very different kind of situation, right, to achieve this kind of strict equality. That's where you see her kind of take the million turn is when she starts moving toward or she always was very much an abortion advocate. But in, her, in the early cases, she takes it slowly, right? She's building on this argument. And I think that, you know, Wilson Craft would very much agree with what she did. And I very much agree with what she did in the early 1970s.
0: Later in her career, when she's on the court, she writes the court's majority opinion on the famous VMI case, United States versus Virginia. And you quote her line from that opinion. She says, quote, the two sexes are not fungible. I looked it up. That was actually a quote from a earlier case itself. She was quoting back to a 1946 Supreme Court decision involving the exclusion of women from a from a grand jury. But that the way that the court put it in 46 and Ginsburg put it for the court in the VMI case, it's striking that two sexes are not fungible. I guess that then is the maybe the best way to put it and maybe a better way that the court could have put it in Mueller versus Oregon, right? That that men and women are equal but not fungible. I mean is that is that a fair way to look yeah, back no. at Mueller?
1: Yeah I think that's I think that's right on. And so the problem with Ginsburg is she recognizes this. And so in VMI, you know, the case in which, you know, she is the author of the opinion, basically, you know, strike down or, you know, disenable the Virginia Military Institute from keeping women from being cadets there. And so what she's doing is saying, you know, look, there may be gender differences in the way women and men are educated. You know, VMI famously argued in the case that you know, they had this adversative, I think that's how you say it, but basically an adversarial kind of education, right? Where they were educating cadets to be prepared to be soldiers, and that this was not something that women would really prefer. And so she says, well, that may be true. Most women probably wouldn't prefer that kind of education, but neither would most men. If there's one woman who would prefer it, she should be allowed, right? And so she's kind of pushing off, you know, the, and she said this a lot that like, you know, gender stereotypes, they could be true across the vast kind of swath of, the population but when we're dealing with you know a state sponsored educational program we can't really discriminate against that one particular woman who is exceptional and this is really you know a million view too you know you really want to push for the that exceptional the one who uses their liberty in an exceptional way and hey i love excellence too i'm you know i want to see exceptional people really advance as well but you know obviously doing damage to bmi is a very controversial view. It's one where in the book that I I have a hard time with this case and I don't come down really either way. What's clear in BMI is that she wants to show that yes, there are these inherent differences between men and women, but that the law should not be used to disparage women in any way. And so that's kind of what you know, where I proceed to say, well, yeah, but abortion law is really disparaging women and it's child in their childbearing capacity because of how distinctive they are. And so trying to you know, get equal citizenship, as she says, through abortion rights is really the wrong way of going about doing that. It's basically saying that women have to basically be like men in the bedroom, in the workplace, and that kind of thing. And so I think I think that's where her philosophy is terribly inconsistent, which is one of the, the things I really argue in the book.
0: The United States versus Virginia, the, the VMI case, that is such a remarkable challenging case. It's quite possible that that case featured both the greatest opinion that Ginsburg ever wrote and also the greatest opinion that Scalia ever wrote. Obviously for Scalia, I think Scalia said a few times that that he was most proud of the, of his dissent on separation of powers in, in Morrison v. Olson, the independent counsel case, but his, his dissent in the VMI case itself is, is, is a masterpiece as is Ginsburg's majority opinion.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And it's hard. It's they're, they're both very well argued and even in the footnotes, I mean, you have to really get into the footnotes to see, some of where the argument takes place, you know, like he really, you know, he says, look, if you want to make these changes to these state sponsored academies, great, do them via the legislature. And that's what the Air Force Academy and the Naval Academy, I'm not sure if those are the exact institutions, but that's what they went about doing. But to take these, you know, general phrases, clauses in the constitution, equal protection of the laws and say that we can strike down this age old institution. And not only that, I mean, one of the, the things that I find the most fascinating about that opinion is when he quotes for, I think it's the gentleman's code. And he just talks about what, you know, at least in theory, (laughs) the kind of code that VMI was trying to teach the men in that institution. And if that were actually being taught how much to the benefit this would be to women, right? It was, you know, respect for women, not treating women as sex objects and all these kinds of things. Now, again, was this being taught? I'm a bit skeptical of that. I don't know, and I and I, you know maybe you'll get callers from VMI saying yes, it was taught. But certainly, those two are, I think, really. You're absolutely right that the the debate that they that they take on in in that case through the opinions is a really fascinating one.
0: Okay, so let's talk about pregnancy and abortion now. That that becomes the crux of the article. You trace the history of all this from the origins of Mill and Wollstonecraft all the way through the 20th century. And then the court's decision in Roe v. Wade and the broader debates about abortion and pregnancy surrounding that case scramble everything. How should we understand the, the abortion and pregnancy debates in the story that you're telling?
1: Yeah, so it, it's really fascinating. I mean, what you see is prior to 1973, you know, you see you see women starting to enter the workplace, and you see by and large that companies that they're working for are starting to give them, you know, maternity leave and these kinds of things. Now, not so advanced as, of course, today people would like to see, but there is kind of an advance, a move toward wanting to do that. Well, you know, Roe comes down and what you start to see is that businesses, states like California, who, you know, is challenging a state disability insurance program. I'm sorry, they're not challenging it. They're defending the state disability insurance program in 1974 that is excluding disabilities resulting from pregnancy. And again, even the kind of language there with regard to pregnancy and disability is very much one that is through and through all of this jurisprudence here and the legislation that comes to pass in the Pregnancy Discrimination Act, a great act which keeps employers from from overtly discriminating against pregnant women, but it's cast in this, it takes on this kind of pregnancy as disability kind of language and all of that really comes from treating in row pregnancy as something that is you know chosen so you know in this post row world when the companies are litigating you know trying to, to not have to pay so much for pregnancy they're starting to fund abortion and in their insurance policies not maternity leave which is of course far more expensive and even in the litigation you know they quote things in their in their brief Quoting, citing Roe saying, well, and, you know, pregnancy in the post-Roe world has become voluntary and subject to planning. So since it's something voluntarily taken up by a woman, we shouldn't have to pay for it like a disability that would befall a man, you know, if he falls off a ladder or something like this. Very, very different kinds of things because a woman, of course, can decide whether or not to have this child. She can abort it. And of course, which, you know, abortion being far less expensive than pregnancy, than maternity, than you know, caring for children, well, the bottom line is going to, you know, dictate that companies are going to want to go for that and be pretty happy with that post row world for their bottom line. So that's what, you know, we begin to see. And so the language, again, in the Pregnancy Discrimination Act is very much analogizing, you know, pregnancy to disability. And in fact, it's mapping onto it. So, you know, what pregnant workers are required to do, sorry, what employers are required to do for pregnant workers at the behest of that 1978 law, is to treat them the same as they would non-pregnant workers who are similar in their ability or inability to do the work. So famously, actually, Judge Posner, I think when he became a judge, said, you know, so they basically can treat pregnant workers just as badly as they treat any other man, you know, so... So it's, 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 it's not something that's, you know, building in these great family policy or something like that, workplace flexibility. No, it's just saying let's treat pregnant, you know, women as well as, or as poorly as we treat disabled men.
0: And the way you describe the unintended effect of Roe of suddenly employers reconsidering, you know, how, how generous to be to, to women employees who become pregnant once pregnancy is seen, you know, more as a choice. It actually reminds me of what you said a little while earlier about the Supreme Court. Was it Justice Sutherland when the Supreme Court backtracked on allowing states to to write more, you know, maximum hours laws for women to, as a way of protecting women? Justice Sutherland says, "Well, a lot's happened since the since the Mueller case. Women now have the right to vote. They're much more equal in our society, and and therefore we're not going to give women special protection anymore." There's 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 sort of a I guess that's sort of the spirit. That you see in, in employers reconsidering what they'll provide for women employees after Roe.
1: Yeah, that's right. I think that that's the line that you see, and it's and it's really fascinating. And as I, you know, tell in this art, article, but then even more so in my book, you see, you know, women's rights advocates just as they did at that time, with you know both Florence Kelly and Alice Paul lining up on very different sides of a case that comes down when you know after the the PDA is passed right away, California. Then says, well, let's build upon the PDA and not just prohibit explicit, you know, discrimination against pregnant women, but let's actually put into law, you know, unpaid leave for women after the birth of their child, four months of unpaid law. Now, again, unpaid law. I'm uh, sorry, unpaid leave, excuse me, unpaid leave for women after the birth of their child. And so you have two, you know, women's rights advocates on both sides, and they line up some for you know the companies who sue and some for. The pregnant women, basically. And so what's happening? And so this is a great look back at this to see what an ERA that requires strict equality would mean. What you see is men bringing suit and saying that this law in California is discriminating against them. And so again, you have these kind of special treat, you know, those who want to see special treatment for women. And then you have those who want pure equality because they're worried that if there's any special treatment for women, employers will just not hire them and there's definitely some truth to that and that's why you know after the supreme court upholds this case says upholds the law says yes you know you can you can have california you can have you know you can build upon the pda that was just a floor not a ceiling that kind of thing you see the family medical leave act you know in the clinton administration and then it's a gender neutral family policy which i think has very much its merits to be sure but it's you know reverting again then to the Alice Paul way of doing things that we want to see a more of a strict equality. But when it's done in legislation, it's quite different because then men and women can sort of choose for themselves whether or not they're going to, you know, access that leave, although it's unpaid. So obviously the poorest cannot access that leave, but it's very different from sort of seeing strict equality at the constitutional level.
0: Now, let's let's look to our own time now and some and some modern debates that I thought of as I was reading through your article. Just a moment ago, you talked about feminists being on opposite sides of of some recent debates. Today we find feminists on on opposite sides of the debates today over gender and gender identity. What are your thoughts on that? And, and what does it say about the the themes that you've traced through history?
1: Yeah, I mean, this is, I think, one of the most fascinating things. And you know, if we had talked about pornography, we would have say, you know, seen the same things and prostitution. I mean, there was that whole time when you see Catherine McKinnon and Andrea Dorkin lining up with, with more conservative kinds of voices in, I guess, the 80s. So here we are again, <laughs> and we see the same sort of thing where what they call these TERFs, right? The, the trans-exclusive radical feminists. If I were a radical feminist, I would consider myself one of those. But, you know, they're lining up with people like Ryan Anderson, who, you know, brought them all together at Heritage to basically say, look, you know, this nebulous gender identity, which now has been, of course, interpreted into Title VII by Justice Gorsuch in the <laughs> Bostock case, is not a helpful way or even, you know, just way of reading sex, you know, understanding sex discrimination. Why? Well, in part, because it's really upending all of the the wins, the great advances that were made by women's rights advocates in the 1970s and beyond, right? Because it's basically saying that if a man identifies as a woman, he can enter, you know, women-only spaces. He can play sports where he has far more, you know, testosterone and had or at least had during his adolescence, testosterone shooting through his body, putting him at a, at a market disadvantage with women, he can identify as a woman and, and go into women only prisons. These are all places that were, you know, specifically outlined to protect women and to in sports and education through Title IX, allow for women's equal opportunity in sports because of the distinctions in, you know, in biological capacity and those kinds of things in strength. I mean, something Wollstonecraft noticed a long time ago, something that, you know, impinges on those questions in VMI, that these differences in strengths are going to have an impact in sports. And so, you know, is that fair? So yes, there are, you know, people lining up. I think feminists should be all, all on one side of this. I don't really understand how feminists on are on the other side. It's very confusing to me. I think we're going to see a lot of fallout from this when you know, there we start to see lawsuits coming in of of young women and young men who have, you know, maimed themselves with the help of doctors to take away their fertility, to disfigure their bodies and have now, you know, regret that as they become adults. So when those lawsuits come through, I mean, hopefully we'll see some justice in all of this, I hope.
0: Maybe just one more modern debate. Reading an article on women's equality occurs to me that, that today actually equality isn't seen by by a lot of people as as all that it's cracked up to be. Right now, there's debates on equality versus equity. As I understand the debate, I, I suppose the the argument is that that we should focus on equity, not equality, because equality isn't all that equal, and that we need to focus on fairness beyond just sort of neutral treatment of people. And I'm curious how the, what the future of women's equality would be in a in a time when equality isn't important. Do you, do you expect a turn to women's equity, or will we just see women's equality, the phrase reframed in terms of of the inequality of equity?
1: Yeah, I mean, this is a super complex question. I think a really interesting question, because of course, we have, you know, traditionally understood equality as equality of opportunity. And what's interesting, and, and I would, you know, lodge this argument too, is that within that view of equality, there tends to be kind of what, you know, you would call like a male normative View. So when you have a neutral law, it tends to be male normative. I think that the whole push for abortion rights being so core to equality kind of builds right into or takes this as something that's kind of given that equality is male normative. And therefore, we need to have the right to take the lives of our children to be more like men in order to compete with men in the workplace. So to me, that argument should be made up and against abortion rights. And I make that quite a bit in my own work. The tricky part is that equity, you know, if you read it as kind of justice, now I don't think this is how it's read and let me get to that, but there is a way in which there's something good about looking at what each person is due, which is of course the classical understanding of justice, because you're looking at them proportionate to their needs. And so I think when it comes to men and women, men and women do have different needs. And not only men and women, but caregivers have different needs from those who are not caring for children in the home. So families have different needs. And so it seems to me that, you know, this great discussion and debate, you know, both parties, but I'm really glad to see it among conservatives for a robust family policy, which is what I really get to at the end of my article, is really important because it's taking that kind of asymmetry seriously. It's taking the asymmetry seriously between men and women that women, you know, disproportionately care for children not only of course in pregnancy, but then also choose to give care in greater numbers, even, you know, look at the places where there's the most freedom, not only in our country, but the Nordic countries. Look at, you know, the Netherlands where women say that they're incredibly happy. You have the highest rate of children child happiness. And those women are working part-time, not full-time. There's rights to part-time work in some Nordic countries because that's what women of younger, you know, young children Would like to be doing. They want to, you know, be able to participate in the workplace. Some, but they also want to prioritize that important, important work in the home. So there is a way in which we want to see give justice according to needs. But I think that that good work takes place in legislatures, both, you know, local legislatures and, you know, potentially in, in in the federal legislature too with family policy now. Looking at that and not trying to bring about strict equality through the ERA, I think that would actually do great damage to trying to find ways to meet each person's needs according to what they actually are and how there are real differences between, again, men and women and child-rearing families and those who are not rearing children, and that those should be treated differently if we want to take seriously the formative work of the family as that work which underlies every other civil, political, and economic good that we share together.
0: Throughout our conversation, we've been talking about your article in National Affairs. And again, it's titled The Contested Meaning of Women's Equality. It was published in the winter 2021 issue of National Affairs. But we've also been making reference to your book that's coming out soon. It comes out in mid-July, titled The Rights of Women, Reclaiming a Lost Vision. There's a very generous blurb from my colleague, Yuval Levin, also one from our recent guest of this podcast, Helen Alvarez. Who says, the rights of women brilliantly articulates what should be a central concern and debate for feminists today. Now, you've referred to the book a few times. What's in it? Is there anything that we haven't touched on that's in the book that you want to focus on? I, I hear there's a chapter that focuses on one of my favorite legal scholars, Marianne Glendon.
1: Yeah, that's right. So the book is really an intellectual history of the cause of women's rights, starting with Mary Wollstonecraft. And she really provides the normative kind of framework for how I think kind of how we could recover an understanding of women's rights today and why, but not only women's rights, really rights at large, you know, just understanding rights as necessary for our prior duties. So connecting, not only connecting rights and responsibilities as yes, my mentor, Marion Glennon was really, you know, so, so wonderfully put in books like Rights Talk, but also really seeing them as rights as really relying on responsibilities rights as necessary so that people can fulfill their prior responsibilities to their families, to their workplaces, to themselves, as citizens, as friends, and those kinds of things. As it turns out, and Glendon, after we get through the history of women's rights in our country, she really becomes the heroine of the book. And what I say is, as I mentioned just, you know, recently when we were talking, that, you know, Ginsburg gets us so far with Wollstonecraft's kind of vision, but that it's really Mary. Marian Glendon, who is, I think, brings to completion in her work, Mary Wollstonecraft's vision. And why is that? It's because of the prioritization of the work of the family, of really seeing the family's work as underpinning, as I, as I just mentioned, you know, every other good that as individuals and as a nation really can accomplish. And so, you know, it's moving away from kind of the libertarian bent or the equality as autonomy bent that you see in so much of modern feminism that really wants to regard, you know, equality in the workplace as so fundamental. You see this in Biden's legislation on family policy. I applaud very much his desire for to see refundable tax credits. I think that that's wonderful. However, he wants to, you know, put in billions of of dollars for daycare for parents who don't want daycare for their children. You know, they want to have some of those burdens lifted so that they can spend time with their own children. And so it's really seeing the priority of the family to the market, which is, I think, really the key insight. And you know, I'll end by just, you know, quoting Marion Glendon. I have the quote in, in the article where she says, think of it, human values ahead of economic values, the dignity of all types, types of work. That is a radical program. It goes to the root of the materialism, and I would add the consumerism and the individualism of both capitalist and socialist societies as we have known them.
0: Now, in addition to discussing Marian Glennon, we, of course, said a lot in this podcast about the late Ruth Bader Ginsburg. At at the time of her passing last fall, you wrote an essay for America magazine titled, What I Will Teach My Children About Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And I'd encourage people they want to learn more about your your views of, of the late Justice Ginsburg to look up that article. You also wrote a few pieces in the fall about Amy Coney Barrett, the successor to Justice Ginsburg on the Supreme Court. You offered your thoughts on, on what her appointment means for, for women's rights jurisprudence. So maybe we'll end on that. What What are your thoughts on the future of the court with Justice Amy Coney Barrett on it? And I'll just note that as we record this in mid-May, we're recording it just days after the Supreme Court granted cert in the case of Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization, where the court will consider the question of whether all pre-viability prohibitions on elective abortions are unconstitutional. So let's close with that. Your thoughts on Justice Barrett and your thoughts on on the Dobbs case.
1: Great. So, yes, I mean, it's kind of fascinating when you have a book that's, you know, literally going to print about this kind of view of women as kind of building on that early 1970s work of Ginsburg in terms terms of anti-discrimination law, but then really Inviting men into the task of caregiving in the home, which many, many men already see as kind of their most important work. And then having someone like Amy Coney Barrett, who I knew and who I, you know, wrote in CNN after Justice Kavanaugh was put forth, you know, I really wish it were Amy Coney Barrett, because I just saw her as a figure who really could scramble so many of these categories because of the life she lives in her home with her very large family and her husband, who, with whom, you know, they have, if you if you watch some of the really wonderful interviews of her, you know, that predate even her, her life as a judge, but talking about the kinds of decision making they made with regard to their careers, it was always for both of them seeing the family as first, seeing their duties as husband wife to each other, and then their responsibilities to their children always as first and seeing how their work could support that. So you have, you know, someone who emerges as this figure as a judge, but then, you know, is elevated to the Supreme Court who really understands that important work of the home as being so important to everything that happens outside the home, everything that happens in the public sphere, and that her husband respects that just as much, respects her, you know, in their relationship, respects her work professionally, and just sees the work that they do in the home as fundamental to who they are as persons. And I think that is a great vision for the future of the women's movement, you know, what I call sort of a dignitarian feminism. You know, it's this idea that, you know, all men and women are equal, but that all human beings, including the child in the womb, have dignity by virtue of being human, but that there's this older sense of dignity, one which, you know, is this kind of Wollstonecraftian, Glendonian kind of understanding of dignity, which strives to see the ends of human life as human flourishing, as human excellence as living lives of virtue and wisdom and kind of, you know, making that possible for others through the work that takes place in the home, through the important work that men and women as mothers and fathers do for their children in guiding them to become, you know, wise, to become virtuous, to become people who deeply respect the dignity of others. And so that to me has great possibilities and to see it very much sort of manifest in the life of Amy Coney Barrett was to me, you know, a source of great hope and to see just, again, Jesse Barrett's life. So I'm very excited that that the Supreme Court has finally granted cert on Dobbs because it's fascinating that we have had this impediment in, you know, Roe and when interpreted with Doe, you know, that companion case that has kept legislators from doing what the public would like to see, which is having restrictions on pre-viability abortion. This is something that is very mainstream in Europe. This is the book, you know, that Glendon wrote, Abortion and Divorce in Western Law, where she showed that we have this, again, very libertarian cast in our law, where we, you know, allow kind of the private killing of children and then, you know, don't give women or families much support. You know, you make a private choice. You can make a private choice to have your child or not have your child, and then it's your private responsibility, too. You know, there's a there's an understanding in Europe where there's a more of a limitation on that abortion right, but then it's understood as when children come to you know come to be, they're understood as a public good, right? I mean, the work of the family, the work of caregiving is a public good. It's something that, as Mary Glendon reminds us in so much of her work, that mothers and fathers do for all of us. And so I think it's it's really good to again muddle these categories and see how, gosh, what I love. An opinion by Amy Coney Barrett, where we really can see that, of course, we should be able to have states pass pre viability bans or restrictions. You can definitely, you will definitely see an amicus brief by me bringing forth, I hope, some of this history, you know, the views of the early women's rights advocates who, you know, were around and doing their work at the time of the 19th century abortion laws that Roe so callously and broadly struck down. And they were very much in favor of those laws. They talked about them in a different way than the doctors who really lobbied for them, but they very much were in favor of those laws because they understood the inviability of the human being and the important work that mothers and fathers did in caring for that, you know, the child in the womb. And then of course, children as they grow older in the family.
0: Well, it it, it would be the understatement of the year to say that we'll be watching for the, the court's Oral arguments and decision in that case. But of course, we'll be watching especially to see, I think, how Justice Barrett grapples with these issues, both at argument and when opinions are written. And I'll be looking forward to seeing what you write along the way in terms of an amicus brief or or articles and other commentaries. But today we've been discussing a book that comes out in mid July titled The Rights of Women Reclaiming a Lost Vision, published by Notre Dame University Press, as well as an article in the Winter 2021 issue of National Affairs titled The Contested Meaning. Of women's equality. The author of both of those has been our guest for today's episode, Erica Bacchiochi. Erica, thanks again for joining us.
1: Thank you so much, Adam. It's been a pleasure.
0: Likewise. And thanks as always to our listeners for tuning in. Be sure to tune in for the next episode of Unprecedential.